take out your Bibles. We can get those lights on back there in the back. That would be fantastic. So everybody can see the Word. We want to be able to see the Word. Amen? If you turn to Luke chapter 21, again, Luke chapter 21, a study that I've entitled, What Lies Ahead? Now I will tell you as we begin this particular passage, that it is what we commonly call uh, the Olivet Discourse. And it is Jesus now going from the temple back to the Mount of Olives, and he is now going to expound on those things that lie ahead. And in some instances in this passage of Scripture, he's referring to some events that are on the very near horizon. A vast majority of them are still yet to come in their fullness and fulfillment. And so this particular message is recorded also in Matthew's Gospel in a much, much, much more in-depth way, and also in Mark's Gospel in a much more in-depth way. And remember that Dr. Luke is a Gentile. And so as we look at this particular passage of Scripture, it's important to get a glimpse of why Dr. Luke would write in a more abbreviated version. And so we will keep our study here in this particular uh, passage in Luke to what it actually says. We could expound, and if you were with us when we studied Matthew's Gospel, we did 11 studies uh, in the Olivet Discourse because it is far more in-depth. Uh, you can get those. They're online. So if you want to go and get the whole thing, they're available to you. And so he's going to begin to expound on the times of the Gentiles, the age of grace, the times in which we still live, yet have not drawn to a close, and yet Jesus predicts they will, that one day God is going to put an end to the age of grace. He's going to say, enough is enough. I've suffered long enough with sin on this earth, and he is going to send back his son Jesus as the rightful deed holder of all of the earth to claim the world that he created for himself. Hallelujah. And so Jesus speaks these words to both encourage and challenge. He's going to get some very difficult questions here, and he's going to answer those questions. And as he does so, he's not trying to answer every single critic of why the world is the way the world is. And so I want to be very careful and very cautious, because much harm, I believe, has been done to the church's influence in the world through the overemphasizing of what Scripture does not clearly say. There are those who have taken these passages and extrapolated them, blown them out to the nth degree, and they've come up with dates and times that Scripture says we don't know. And so I want to be careful, but I also want to be concise. I want to be cautious, but I also want to do the passage the justice it deserves, because these are the words of Christ speaking about the days in which we currently live. The same could have been said in that day and time. Jesus merely says that these things are the beginnings of the troubles. He does not say that when these things happen, the end is next week. And therein lies the, the dilemma that many find themselves in when they go too far 
with this particular passage. And so would you join me as we pray and ask God to speak to us. Father, you authored these words by your Holy Spirit. They were spoken through Jesus Christ, your Son. And Lord, we honor you because every word that you have spoken is true. It is yes and it is amen. And so we ask you to help us, Lord. Open our minds to understand. Open our ears to hear. Spirit, speak to us this morning as your church. Remind us of the days and the times in which we live. Lord, that we might be prepared. Lord, we do believe that time draws short. That as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be when the Son of Man comes. And Lord, we look at our world. And it's hard not to get excited that this might be the day that the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ are raised and we who are alive and remain might meet you in the air. Lord, it could happen today. So help us to be prepared for whatever you're going to do with our lives as we wait in the age of grace. Lord, help us to be productive for your kingdom. Help us to know your word and help us to do it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you look at this passage of Scripture, we'll be picking up, um, obviously, in verse 5 this morning. And as we do so, Jesus is going to get these very difficult questions asked him. Notice verse 5, And then, as some spoke of the temple, and how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, Jesus said. Jesus begins by interjecting, in the conversation that's being had principally by the disciples, but they're speaking about the temple. And as they're looking at this massive complex that would have been the temple in that day, the temple completed by Herod, in all of its finery, Jesus is actually looking down at it. And the easiest thing for you to understand is when you would be on the Mount of Olives, it's less than a half mile away to the Temple Mount as the crow flies. And because it drops to the Cadron Valley and then up the slopes to the Temple Mount, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives looking directly at the Temple. He can see it. The disciples have come with him back to the Mount of Olives and they're there looking with him at the, at the temple proper. This was the temple that was built by Zerubbabel and Ezra in Ezra chapter 6, and it was expanded and greatly improved by Herod the Great. Herod did that for a nefarious motivation. He was helping build the temple really to quell the Jews into believing that he was their friend. And so he gave them immense amounts of money, And he gilded that same temple with gold plates. It was so bright and made of limestone. There are several limestone quarries in the Jordan River Valley where these stones were mined and they were then brought to the Temple Mount. That It was said of the temple that you could see it from any horizon that you were on. So if you were coming to Jerusalem, literally the temple would glow during the day. At night, because of the great menorah, that was inside of the temple, the light would pour out of the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but the holy place. And so you could see the temple 24-7, 365. It was as if the glory of God was actually visible because of the way the temple was constructed. And so they're looking at this temple. 
And he says, these things which you see. He's looking at the temple. It's in reference to the temple. That temple. The days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. He says, you see that temple right there? As grand and as great as it is, one day it will be toppled. It will be thrown into the valley surrounding it, and it will stand not again until the millennial temple is raised when the Lord comes again. If you've ever wanted to understand why there is such a fight over the temple mount, this is why. Because the Jews desire to build a new temple. That is their place where they met with God. The Muslims have two mosques on that Temple Mount, the Al-Aqsa and the Dome of the Rock, the Harim al-Sharif. They don't want it built because it's their third most holy place. And so the conflict continues. So much so that during the 67 war when the Temple Mount was taken, it was just 24 hours later it was given back to Jordan. And it remains in Jordanian control and Arab control to this day. So much so that in order to visit the Temple Mount, you have to have permission from the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. And so if he's having a bad day, no non-Muslims get to go on the Temple Mount. And so they asked him, because they're looking at the Temple. It'd be like if prior to 9-11, you had been standing in downtown Manhattan and saying, there are the World Trade Center towers. There will come a day when those towers won't be there. They'll be reduced to rubble. You'd be going, ah, give me a break. You're, you're, you're expounding on something about which you do not know. That's crazy talk. And if you'd gone on to describe, well, there's going to be some Arab terrorists, and I'll call them what they were. They were Arab terrorists. They were Muslim terrorists. Muslim fundamental terrorists that flew jets into those buildings. If I'd have told you that a couple of weeks ahead of time, you'd all been going, whack job. (laughs) Nutcase. Had too much coffee. (laughs) Been reading too many conspiracy theories. So you can imagine the Jewish people, you can imagine the disciples, a majority of whom were Jews, Those in earshot, hearing the words, there's going to come a day when that grand temple that you're looking at right there, glistening in the sun, as the sun sets over the Mediterranean, as they were staring at the temple mount, that temple is not going to be there. And so they asked, teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? You see, they're asking a natural question. There's a literal temple. You're saying the literal temple is literally not going to be there. When's it going to happen? Because that temple was the center of Jewish life. It had been so for nearly a thousand years. Remember, it was rebuilt, began to be rebuilt under the reign of Nehemiah, Zerubbabel. So 
you're talking, now they're looking at this going, there was a temple there that was destroyed. There's a reason that Ezra and Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem. Amen? And so for a thousand years, God's people, the Jews, had come to the Temple Mount, and there they had met with God. Ah, nobody's going to destroy that. We're actually under Roman occupation. And look, it's actually gotten expanded. It looks awesome. That is how people look at our world today. Oh, you know, those people that talk about the end times, they're a little off. They've been talking about that stuff forever. It's never going to happen. It's just allegorical. It's a metaphor. Maybe someday some things will happen that will kind of look like... Things have been happening like that forever. That was exactly the position that the disciples had. They're looking at, ah, that's kind of hard to believe, Jesus. Not one stone? That temple at that time was 500 yards long. It was 400 yards wide. You could have stuck two NFL football fields up there. It was big. It was large. And it was beautiful. To give you an idea of the size and scope of that, if you go to Jerusalem today and you look at the Wailing Wall, which is only about 200 feet long, that's the part that you can see, that is the remnant of the retaining wall of Herod's temple. That's what it is. And if you go in the underground portion, because it's been built on top of uh, by the Muslims and expanded, and so those crusader walls that are there are actually on top of the old walls, and the western wall is the remnant, and that's why the Jews worship there. It was there during Jesus' time. If you go underground into the tunnels that are adjacent to uh, that particular area, and you go specifically in, into the section that uh, is over Wilson's Arch, underneath and underground you can visit a single stone that's almost 50 feet long, 9.5 feet tall, and 10 feet wide that weighs 570 tons. If you put it in this room, it would go from that wall all the way to the back of the cry room and would take up half of the room. That's how big that single stone is. It is believed to be the largest stone ever moved without mechanical intervention. In other words, using a crane or a bulldozer or something to drag it along, to move it. It was put in place, we now know, by very tiny lead balls brought in on a ramp, on logs, slid in place, and so precisely cut that you cannot stick a credit card in the crack on that stone. Those lead balls then squished as the weight settled down on it, and that wall was built up. So when you look at that wall today, it was put there by Herod's workmen. A magnificent, you can imagine trying to think of something that weighs 570 tons ever getting moved. It's buried. You can't see it unless you go underground. Jesus said not one stone will be left. You go to Jerusalem today, that is exactly what you find. Jewish historian Josephus reminds us that the temple was covered with gold plates. Where there was no gold, there was white marble. 
So they're looking at this. Not one stone. Not one stone. And Jesus is saying, there's an event coming. And in fact, it would happen about 40 years later. As Titus, Flavius, Vespasian, Augustus, who would eventually become Caesar Nero, he would become the emperor of Rome, would bring his armies and besiege Jerusalem. They would destroy the city. Roman soldiers surrounded it, and as it surrounded the Temple Mount, the final bastion where the Jewish people ran, it was so strong, it was also a fortress to them. When they finally burned the temple, because inside were walls of wood, furnishings inside of it, ultimately so hot was the flame that the gold of the temple actually melted, and the gold then seeped down in the cracks of the stones, and so the Romans pushed the temple off the temple mount to get to the gold from the fire that consumed the inside of the Sanhedrin and the temple proper. Stones then off the walls. If you go there today, you will see the evidence of what God does very often in each of our lives. Because good things can become an idol. The temple was a good thing. It was where God met with His people. He had actually ordained it. It was He that designed it. It was he that said, build it thus and so. It was he that so loved it that Solomon didn't get to build it. Remember? Because he sinned. It gets finished by someone else. But as they began to worship in the temple, they began to worship the temple instead of the true and the living God. Much like Paul would write to the church at Rome, and they worship the creation rather than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. Creation's wonderful. A lot of us live here because we like creation. I, I like trees. I'm not really a city guy. Give me a, a, a trout and a stream and I'm good. I, I like creation, but I don't worship creation. I love the heavens. People worship the heavens. People worship science. People worship money. That is why Jesus said no one can serve two masters. And he used the reference of money. I would say to you that many in America, their God is money. Perhaps power. Be careful what you worship. Because you were made to worship God. And when you begin to worship anything other than God, you have become an adulterer, an adulteress, because you were made to worship God. Don't worship church. Don't worship Calvary Chapel. In Jesus' name, do not worship me. You'll find out I'm a false god in that sense. We worship the Lord. The Jews had begun to worship the temple. And so God allows the destruction under Titus to occur. And if you 
take a look at that Wailing Wall today. If you look at the very bottom rows of stones, about the top five, bottom five courses there, as it heads what would be to, to that side, my right, your left, uh, it goes underground, and it is there that those very large construction stones with square holes in them so that they could be moved with sticks along on logs exist. That's it. The whole upper section of that wall is all from the Arabs, from the Muslims, from the invaders. It's all there is. They're still worshiping at that wall, still worshiping that temple. Now again, blindness in part has come upon them until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. That is the most holy place to Jews to this day. As you as you look at that place, what you actually see is the crusader walls and the rubble of the temple that's been pushed off the south side down into the valley that buried part of David's city. That rubble still exists. What Jesus said would happen just a scant 40 years later under Flavius Titus, the Roman general who would become emperor. A long line from the lineage of Vespasian, who began to rule in a time uh, where there were four emperors in Rome in one year. All died out after Nero committed suicide. And so they meant business. You see, the three questions are these. When would the temple be destroyed? What would be the sign of His coming? What would be the end of the age? And it is these questions that Jesus now goes on to answer in a tertiary way. He does not give a long, exhaustive list of everything that will happen and the timing of it, though they're asking for it. Remember, the Jews ask for a sign. We as the church look for our Savior. Amen? We're not looking for a sign. I don't need a sign. I want Jesus to come back and come get his church. You see, as Luke writes from that Gentile perspective, the, the disciples were going, man, this, was it next week? Next month? Next year? When are these things going to happen? Because you're saying some pretty provocative things here, Jesus. And so a Jew speaking to a Jew says, hmm, let me help you understand these things. And it is from there that we move forward. You see, as the Lord said, they're, they're, the Jews were looking for, all the time were looking for a sign. To show us something. Isn't that people today? Show me a sign. Show me something that's going on in the world. People are overwhelmed at times when you, when you just simply say, look, Jesus is coming back. So they ask you, how do you know? What they're really looking for is a sign. They've already got him. Jesus said there would be no sign given unto you except the sign of Jonah. Jesus. Dead three days. And then raised again to new life. That was the sign. It was the only sign they were going to get. And so he gave them some proofs. 
And I, I want to remind you that this passage does not address the rapture of the church. So be very careful in your theology when you look at this passage of Scripture. Because many people, well, the rapture's not there. Yes, it's not there. Because it's a Jew speaking to Jews. And the Jewish people, by and large, were not going to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And so when we get to the book of First Thessalonians and we read there, that, that passage that says we're going to be snatched away by force, to them, they were having a tough time believing the temple wasn't going to be in existence, much less Christ was coming back in the clouds to receive his church. And so it's no surprise that it's not mentioned in this particular passage of Scripture, nor in Matthew's Gospel, nor in Mark's Gospel. But he does mention the second coming because that is for the Jewish people. And we'll get to that next time. As you look at this passage of Scripture, uh, what we're looking for, of course, is Jesus to come back. Amen? Today would be good. You know, I want the Chargers to beat the, uh, you know, yes. to beat the Patriots in Jesus' name. <laughs> However, if that game gets preempted by the Lord sounding a trumpet, I'm good with that. Okay? You, you see, we need to understand that we're looking for Jesus to come. But I want to be taken away before it gets really bad. That's why 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, For God has not appointed us believers to wrath, but unto salvation. In other words, He's not putting us through what He saved us from. That would be silly. That would be unconscionable. That God would say, I'm saving you from the wrath that is to come, and then to put you through the wrath that is to come. It doesn't even make any sense. And so when you look at this passage and its companions there in Matthew and Mark's Gospel, you'll find that it shows us the first half of the tribulation, gives us the middle of the tribulation, the last half of the tribulation, and it kind of closes up. So when you look at these descriptions that are given here, you see a very simple outline in the Olivet Discourse. You can read those companions, Matthew 24, Mark chapter 13. You read those, they correspond to this chapter here in Luke. Far more detail in Matthew and Mark. And so what is Jesus doing when he does these things? He's simply giving us a general description of the very last days. He's saying this is what it's going to look like when he comes again. Not when he comes for the church, when he comes again. Verse 8, And he said to them, Take heed that you be not deceived. How many people in our world today are deceived? How many people in our world today have not got a clue that Jesus is coming again? How many people, religious people, who attend church very regularly, are deceived because they do not believe that Jesus is coming again? Ah, I've been saying that forever. I invite them to go look at the Temple Mount and see if they find a temple. Because what Jesus said first already happened. I believe that what he said after that will also, with exacting precision, also happen. Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. In other words, false messiahs, false religions, those purporting to be the answer when they're not the answer, when in fact they are a cult. 
The time has drawn near, and therefore do not go after them. So he says first a general description of these things. And I want to remind you that what will happen is these things will intensify as the end actually draws close. He's saying religious delusion, international disasters. He's describing what the world will look like right before the church exits stage left. Actually stage up. Caught up to meet him and forever, amen, to be with the Lord and so comfort one another with these words. You should be comforting one another with these words found there in First Thessalonians chapter 4 that one day our earthly travails are over. And I can't wait. Wow, I watch what's going on in, in Ferguson and New York City and these things. This is horrific. This is horrible. How can we have gotten so far down life's road and absolutely gone nowhere in that journey at times? The answer is Jesus, folks. Because what he's really talking about is that coming, coming day of the Lord. And when you look at the world today, it's crazy how many cults are, are out there saying they are the way, and at the same time denying the plain truth that Jesus is coming again. You have all the nutcases that are out there influencing the world over their supposed prophecy ministries of how they know when Jesus is coming back. No one knows when Jesus is coming back, okay? Don't know when the rapture is going to happen. That's going to be instantaneous. You aren't going to know. Twinkling of an eye, boop, gone. And then the only timing that you have of when the Lord is coming again is we know from Daniel's prophecy, it's at the middle of the tribulation. So, you ain't going to be here if you know Jesus. So anybody that says they know today can't know today because Jesus hasn't come and gotten his church yet. Tribulation has not begun, so we don't have a clue about the actual date. That's why Harold Camping, praise God, is now home with Jesus. I believe he actually loved the Lord, but he, he predicted you know, eight or nine times a different date that the Lord would come. The Jehovah's Witnesses did the same thing. 1914, 1918, 1920, 1945, 1941, 1970. You know, it's like, well, we got 144,000, so we got to have the Lord come back real soon because we got 144,000, and so, you know, got to wait for another generation to die off and change the date. The deception is monumental. You got the false messiahs, the other Jesus, another revelation of Jesus Christ, also known as a heresy believed by about six million people called the Mormon Church. It's not the real Jesus, because the real Jesus is one of one. He doesn't have any brothers. The real Jesus died on Calvary's cross for all mankind, that whosoever should believe in him, not for those who were sealed in the temple. Doesn't say that in here. The delusions would come. He goes on to say that there would be tremendous international distress. And notice this, but when, verse 9 says, you hear of wars and commotions, rumors of wars, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first. Circle that word. They're a sign that the beginnings of the end is coming. They're not the sign that the end is here, but it's coming. It's ramping up. The white horses are getting ready in heaven. 
but not that it's going to happen next week. But the end, and Jesus says so, notice what it says, but the end will not come immediately. Remember what they asked him? When's it going to happen? Not immediately. You're going to see wars and rumors of wars. And yes, these things have been happening for thousands of years. He said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, fearful sights and great signs from the heaven. He says, man, the world is going to come unglued like you've never seen it unglued before. And people to this day, you know, we have to be careful because we keep track of, you know, USGS, U.S. Geological Survey does a great job of keeping track of, of earthquakes. You know, it's just like, okay, well, let's call and see when we have. Now we know that there are hundreds of thousands of them every single week all over the globe, and they are increasing in intensity and magnitude. We've had more magnitude 7 earthquakes in the last 20 years than we have in the preceding 1,000 years. So they are increasing. So for me, I'm looking up. I'm saying, even so, Jesus, come quickly. Get your church. We'd like to go home now if it's okay with you. But don't start telling people it's happening next week. Because then you're going to live long enough to have your eye blackened. And the Lord's with you. We don't know. The signs themselves are just merely a sign to us that it's getting closer. And so as these things get closer together and intensify, we know that that time is closer. That's why we can truthfully say, I don't know how much longer the Lord's going to wait. Because they are so close together and so much greater in magnitude, we have the capacity to destroy the world a hundred times over with nuclear weapons. One ballistic missile submarine has the entire capacity to, to, of destruction that was all of the ordnance dropped in World War II. You realize that? One sub. You took every bomb, every bullet that went off during World War II, including the two atom bombs we dropped on Japan, one nuclear submarine has that destructive capability. We have 18 of them. We do. The Russians have a matching ballistic force. Wars, rumors of wars. We've invented nerve agents. We've invented chemical weapons. We have disease like mankind has never seen on the face of the earth. As advanced as we are in our medical technology, we still can't cure cancer. Amen? We still can't cure AIDS. Amen? We've just watched 5,500 people die of Ebola. People by the hundreds of thousands die from starvation every single month. And so when you look at these things, what Jesus was really saying, and we're going to see this, give you a little update here, Coming in January, we're studying the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights. So it's been 12 years since we did it. Wednesday nights, book of Revelation. And when you look at these things, they correspond to the very last days. They correspond very specifically to the Great Tribulation. When these things are finally ramped up. And so when you see these things begin to come to pass... There is nothing anyone can do to prevent them. 
Does that mean that we shouldn't try to broker peace? Of course not. We should try and live at peace with all men as best as we can. Your Bible says that. But there's not going to be peace on this earth until the Prince of Peace comes. That's the long and the short of it. He said these things are going to continue to increase. They will get more intense and they will get closer together until the church is raptured. The tribulation ensues. And Jesus comes again a second time for Israel. That's what's going to happen. And so it shouldn't shock you that our Secretary of State and our President are about to censure Israel. It shouldn't shock you that the whole world is focused in on this little tiny nation. Home to the Jewish people. A scant eight million of them. That's it. That's all the Jews that live in Israel. It's about eight million. There's almost that many Arabs. In Israel. And yet the world is focused in on this little tiny nation saying, ah, give up more land. Jesus said, there will be wars and there will be rumors of wars until he comes. No one's going to prevent them. And so as you look at these lists, remember to look at the parallel lists that exist in Scripture. It's important for you to do that. And so he finally says, notice this in verse 12, but these, but before all these things. So now he's talking about the years directly before things get really close to the end. Before all these things, they will lay their hands upon you and persecute you. Christians will suffer persecution. Look at your world today and ask yourself a simple question. What is religiously the most persecuted group of people on the face of the earth? It's us. And it's right here in this country. You can go, if you, you go by a billboard and, and you put Jesus is explicative, 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 the explicative, explicative, blank, explicative, asterisk, semicolon, couple of ats on there, and who gives a explicative, semicolon, at. If you put something up there vile, filthy, and disgusting about Jesus, you'll have people taking selfies in front of it. Hey, did you see that's awesome? Put up a nativity someplace on a lawn at a government building and you will be sued and dragged before the magistrates. You'll be told you cannot do that. That is abuse to everybody that goes by. If you stand for what the Bible says, like those five Houston mayors, five Houston pastors did against the mayor of Houston, you'll be sued for simply repeating what Scripture says about homosexuality. But if you call somebody every filthy name that could possibly ever be uttered and then say, because Jesus is that way, you'll probably have a book written about you. That's the most awesome thing I ever heard. So where are we in the world? I'd say we're really close. Notice how he continues this as we wrap this up this morning. 
delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. In other words, the Jewish people would actually help persecute the church, and they did. That's what the Apostle Paul was doing when he came to Christ on the road to Damascus. Amen? You will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake. Hmm. Hobby Lobby ring a bell to you? The fight over the Edna law in Congress ring a bell to you? Does homosexual marriage ring a bell to you? Be brought before the rulers over the plain teaching of Scripture. Standing for God. For my name's sake. Because it's not Jewish people that are bringing these things. It's Christians. It's Christians that are standing up for Christ. It is Christians who are saying, enough's enough. It is Christians who are standing up and saying, look, we've got to stop killing 1.8 million babies every year. We have to do that. God's not pleased with it. It's Christians saying those things. And what's the result? Dragged into court. Livelihood stripped away. You can't even have a wedding chapel and say, look, I, I'm not marrying two guys. My Bible says I can't do that. I'm standing on what it says. Sued. It's the world that we live in. But you will turn out, <clears throat> but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Amen? Isn't that exactly what's happening? Praise God for Tony Perkins, the Family Research Council. Praise God for the American Center for Law and Justice. Praise God for the Pacific Justice Institute. Praise God for those willing to stand up and say, enough is enough, we're going to preach Christ, and if you don't like it, we'll see you in prison. Because that's what we need to be doing. That's what the Bible, that's what Jesus said would happen when we get close. And therefore, settle it in your hearts not to mediate beforehand, meditate, excuse me, beforehand and what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to control and resist. Amen. It's exactly what's going on. You speak the truth. That's why Pastor Jack filed the lawsuit in Sacramento saying, look, you're not going to make us buy insurance that by the very basis of the law forces us to pay for abortion. We will not do it as a church. God gave them the words. God gave them the money. You will be betrayed even by your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, your friends. Some will even put you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair in your head shall be lost. And by your patience, possess your souls. You see what Jesus is saying? Don't worry. I got this. I got this. I created the universe. I created mankind. These things are going to happen. And when you see them happen, you get really excited for the day that the Lord is at hand. That moment when we're taken away is at hand. And he encourages them. He says, look, this is all for my namesake. You're, you're going to get persecuted by your government. I'm expecting, we are expecting for the tax exemption for your tithe to be taken away within the next two years. It's been on the docket for four years now. We're expecting it. We're going to keep preaching Christ. I don't know how that works out. I know who my God is.
Don't know. People in your own family are going to... I've had members of my family say, I don't want to hear about Jesus. No more Jesus. Don't want to hear about Him. He's a myth. Well, He's, he's a myth that loves you then. You, you see, we need to honor Him and give Him witness of our very lives. And so He speaks to these things and He leaves them with something that they could actually look at and then would live long enough to see. Notice verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that would happen 40 years later. This is only found here in Luke's Gospel. It's similar to the language in Matthew and Mark, but it is unique because he's saying to them, through the Gentile writer, look, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near. What was he talking about previously? The temple. It got destroyed. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst depart, and not let those who are in the country enter into her. For these days are the days of vengeance, that all things that are written might be fulfilled. Woe unto those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be, there will be great distress in the land, and wrath upon his people, the Jews. God's people at that time were the Jewish people. He's saying, look, Jerusalem's going to be besieged. Jerusalem's going to be attacked. The temple's going to be destroyed. It is going to happen. You can't stop it. They will fall by the edge of the sword. And the word used there is for the Roman short sword. It is the same word. You'll be killed by the sword of the Romans. Be led away captive to all nations. Were the Jews not led away captive to all nations for two, nearly 2,000 years? Kicked out of their own city. To this day, our government does not recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. If you go to Jerusalem today... You need to be very, very careful because it is trampled by the Gentiles. There are parts of Jerusalem you should not go to. There are places that you are not welcome. And so what Jesus is saying, look, coming in about 40 years, you're going to see the Roman general, Titus, lay siege to this city. And according to Flavius Josephus, more than a million Jews would lose their lives. They would be killed by the sword, principally. That reign of terror lasted for almost a year. The temple was destroyed, pushed into the valley surrounding the Temple Mount, and the times of the Gentiles continue to this day graciously because of the cross of Christ they continue to this day because God is still seeking to save those which are lost he still has a heart for all Israel to be saved amen as Romans 11 says one day that's going to happen they're going to see Messiah they're going to see him who they pierced you and I caused it but they were the ones that said give us Barabbas 
The Lord is coming for His church. That 1 Corinthians 15 passage, I love it. Twinkling in an eye, we're gone. But make no mistake, the world is on a collision course with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And nothing can stop it. And the days that you live in are proof that it's near. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. What your word says there in First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, that you have not appointed us unto wrath, but unto salvation. Lord, we believe that you're going to come and snatch us away by force, pull your church out of this place, and then uh, these things which are unfolding before us today will find their final and most powerful place in this earth as the tribulation ensues, but you've not called us to go through it. And so, Lord, we're thankful for that. And in the meantime, we realize the siege of grace is so that the lost might be found. Help us to be busy about your business of seeking to save that which is lost. Lord, we love you. We thank you. God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that does not know Jesus Christ, have never professed you a Savior, that they would not leave this place without asking you into their life, without asking you to forgive their sin, that they would repent and walk with you all of their days. Lord, we love you. We bless you. We praise you as your people. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Amen.